when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. Happy New Year, everybody. On January 18th, the Huffington Post will be hosting a debate between the declared candidates for the chair of the Democratic National Committee. The way things are shaping up, it's looking like the top contenders will be Minnesota Congressman Keith Ellison and Obama Labor Secretary Tom Perez. So in advance of the debate, we'll continue to dig down into the distinctions between these two men and explain what's at stake for the Democratic Party. Meanwhile, incoming President Donald Trump has made a lot of promises about keeping the United States out of pointless military conflicts abroad. But in Yemen, which has become a destructive proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, Trump is inheriting quite the quagmire. It's been almost a year since he's had anything substantive to say about Yemen, so I guess we're going to be trying to warn him that he'd better stop tweeting and start thinking about this. Finally, We're going to spend a little time on the legacy of outgoing President Barack Obama with an eye this week on his judicial legacy, the appointments he's made, the opportunities he's lost, and the political precedents that have been left behind. As with most things in life, it's a mixed bag, only the contents of this mixed bag will shape policies affecting all of us for decades to come. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Jen Bendery, Zach Carter, and Arthur Delaney. And here's what happened first. Hello and happy new year to everyone out there. Welcome back to another year of the So That Happened podcast, your weekly dose of doom and false hope. My name is Jason Lincoln. I'm the editor of Youth, the President of the Huffington Post. I'm joined, as always, by Zachary Carter. Hey, happy new year, everybody. Yes, and Arthur Delaney. Happy new year. And uh, just before we get started, some business, a huge oversight on my part. Uh, the last podcast you heard, uh, which was the one that happened before we became 2017, uh, was uh, the final podcast from our producer, Christine Canetta. Uh, she has gone on to take a job with SB Nation. Uh, we wish her the very best. She podcasted, she produced this podcast all year, well, not all year, but like I think starting in February and did a really fine job. We're also very happy to welcome our new producer, Amber Ferguson. Yay! Yay! We're very excited yes. about having Amber. And and we hope Amber will be here for at least a year. At that point, probably someone will offer her a better job and she'll leave. And, you know, I guess that's <laughs> the Spinal Tap drummer of podcast jobs, except you don't die, you graduate. So that's great news. And we're stuck here talking about how weird and bad America is. But we're going to start today talking about the DNC race. The Huffington Post is going to be uh, hosting a debate between the candidates for DNC chair. Uh, Zach, you, you recently 
um, interviewed one of those top candidates, uh, Minnesota Representative Keith Ellison. Yes. And this is, we've talked before, this has kind of become an interesting and weird proxy fight between uh, sort of outsider insurgents and the outgoing Obama administration. Um, having talked to Ellison, uh, do you see any different kind of contours on this on this big debate? Uh, well, you know, so a month um, I, we talked to, to to Keith Ellison this week, uh, Democrat congressman from uh, Minnesota, very prominent supporter of Bernie Sanders in the presidential primary. Um, his main rival is Tom Perez, who we interviewed uh, about a, a month earlier, uh, who's labor labor secretary for for President Obama. He's still still in office. Um, Perez is, in a lot of ways, I think to many people on Capitol Hill, he's viewed as the most progressive cabinet member of the Obama administration. He's been very strong on um, both at the Department of Labor and in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. Uh, Ellison is viewed by most people on Capitol Hill as one of the strongest progressives in Congress. He runs the Congressional Progressive Caucus. There just isn't a whole lot of ideological daylight between these guys. The main difference is that uh, it appears that President Obama has been supporting uh, Tom Perez, while Bernie Sanders, and much of the, the sort of Capitol Hill establishment is supporting Keith Ellison. Yeah, Jason described this as insider versus outsider, but really it's everyone in Washington versus Obama administration. Yeah, that's a better way of putting it. Yeah, Thanks but, for correcting me. But, but you know, it, 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 it wasn't clear that that was how it was, it, it was going to work out. This right? developed last month with yeah. Obama's press conference, right. basically. Before, before Obama really jumped into this thing, uh, essentially the entire establishment was deciding that they had decided that they wanted to make nice with the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. And one way that they could symbolically sort of salve the wounds from the primary was to put you know, a Bernie person who everybody respects, who's Keith Ellison, uh, in, in the DNC post. It's, because know, the previous person who had the job was very controversially totally pro-Hillary. And generally considered not good at her job. Debbie Wasserman Schultz is Democrat from Florida. Uh, I mean, they too, lost. Too bank-friendly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, Petty-lender-friendly. Yeah. Really uh, publicly not, bad. Yeah. Not, a, not a very good manager with the process. Um, made a lot of enemies. So this was something you could say to the Bernie people, all right, look, I, you know, I, I personally think that it's a stretch to say that Debbie Wasserman Schultz cost... cost uh, Bernie the, the primary, but it is clear that they were they they were they were they were not rooting for him to win at the DNC. Right. Not not seen as a neutral arbiter. So giving the DNC post to Bernie people is a way to say, hey, we hear you, we care about you, you're important to the party. Um, and Obama basically said no. Uh, so but he did it in characteristic Obama diplomatic fashion and right. and by putting forward you know the most progressive guy that he's got essentially on his team so in a sense for the the sort of left-wing policy side of, of the Democratic Party whichever one of these guys wins is is a win for that uh, for, for that circle I think if you told most Bernie people uh, a year ago that Tom Perez was going to be the next DNC chair they would have been thrilled but now that Keith Ellison is somebody who can who who frankly is the front runner still the front runner he's got Chuck Schumer Harry Reid all of these centrist Dems in addition to uh, in addition to a bunch of the unions that backed Hillary, uh, you know they they're much more enthusiastic about seeing Ellison. Now these are both, like you said, liberal guys. People would be happy with either one. But you did in your interview with Ellison, I think, draw out a actual disagreement between Perez and Ellison on how they would run the DNC. Yeah. So a lot of what the DNC does is fundraising. It's responsible for just raising money that keeps the party going and makes it function. And there are different philosophies about, about the right way to raise money. Debbie Wasserman Schultz was sort of a, you know, all money is created equal uh, kind of manager. Um, Obama had put in place a ban on donations from lobbyists. 
uh, and and during the Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, Wasserman Schultz just sort of quietly lifted that ban and began receiving money from from lobbyists again. In our interview, Keith Ellison said that he would reinstate that ban. Um, there there isn't frankly that much money that get that comes from lobbyists in no? the DNC. It's a pretty no. Small aren't these guys like aren't there bundlers who are you know get a bunch of money from their corporate clients and then fling it at the DNC? True, but a lobbyist donation. Remember, we're talking about actual money coming out of their pockets going into the uh, in, into the party, and it's it's only about uh, six or seven percent of the haul that the DNC brings in. And remember, lobbyists also work for. You know the executives and the special interests, uh, who who no one is saying that they you know th- these donations will be will be broken up. But Elson, U- unions have lobbyists. Sure, sure. Has Perez uh, taken a position on this? He has. Perez says that he wants to have everything on the table. So he he rejected the idea of reinstating the ban. Okay. Aha! Um, Aha! So this is the difference. Uh, look, the, the the money to run the party. There, people have legitimate di- differences about how you know how how you want to fund this thing. Um, but I think Allison's point that he made, I, I thought he made it pretty eloquently. Was that it matters to the public the way you're perceived, and even if lobbyists, you know, aren't aren't the most crooked people in the world, right? Um, the fact that they're working on legislation day to day, you know, when they're when they're giving to the party, it looks a little bit it looks a little bit sleazy, and it sends a message by saying you're not going to take this kind of money about the type of party that you want to be, and it tells voters, you know. He, Ellison has made a big deal about trying to focus on small dollar donations, much in the way that Bernie Sanders did, sure, the famous yeah. $27 donation. It shows voters, hey, we really do care. And it's not clear, you know, even Ellison's plan is, I think, 30, he, he's hoping to get 33% of the party's money from small dollar donors. That's a lot more than zero, right? So it's it's a lot more than they're getting right now. But uh, but that's even that, you know, it's, it's not like the small donors are suddenly going to take over immediately, but it is a way... Of, of telegraphing to people, we want this to be a party that is that is democratic, small d, not not quite as focused uh, on on people who can write big checks. S- saying no lobbyist is like saying the Republicans in Congress saying we're ethical. <laughs> so it's like not demantling the ethics office. Right, right. It's 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 sort of like it's a, it's a small step, but it, it, it's symbolic. But right. Even if that office didn't really do that much. Right. But you, but right. You don't go around saying I'm not ethical. Right. So this week, <laughs> this week, Vox writer Matt Iglesias talked about the DNC race, and he said the simple logic of what the DNC should do is bring on Ellison as the chair and have Perez run as the governor of Maryland. That mm-hmm. that makes sense straight up and down because you bring a more youthful element into the DNC by bringing in a Bernie supporter. And you put a strong progressive in a race against a popular Republican governor in a race that matters. So, I mean, it seems like it seems like outside of perhaps President Obama's perceptions of, of how the, the future of the DNC, it, it just literally seems like across the spectrum, we're talking from Vox to, I don't right. know, the Bernie Sanders coterie, there seems to be like an emergency consensus that Ellison's the guy. So, what possible pitfalls are there from here to now? Obviously, this is the the debate, mm-hmm. um, uh, and obviously, I think that these guys like each other. Though they're not they're not going to be flinging mud at each other. Sure, in, of course. In, in that's that the other yeah, is this this yeah. isn't like a bad thing. I that mean, there's I feel, a debate. This is great. Mm-hmm. I feel there there are of course going to be probably liberals out there who who have more purer things in mind than I do. But to my mind, the DNC race is an embarrassment of riches for liberals right now. It, it seems pretty good. I think one um, one, one thing to, to remember, though, is that um, the the general public doesn't elect the, the DNC chair. Right. Yeah, that's uh, true. It's, it's 447 people. It's it's sort of the uh, the super delegate team uh, yeah. that, that that ends up doing this. It's state and local party officials, most of whom got behind Hillary Clinton last year. Uh, so so 
Ellison's got to make, you know, he, he's got he's got to close the sale with those people, and a lot of them don't want to vote for him just because he's a Bernie guy. Uh, a lot of them are perfectly willing to vote for him just because he's a Bernie guy. Uh, it, it really is a matter of who's who's going to be able to work the phones best with those 447 people to 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 rack up a majority. Uh, but so far, frankly, both he and Perez have 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 you know made good public presentations about themselves. Um, and I would be I would. Perez has got to do a lot of work to make up the ground that he's already lost in endorsements. You know, Ellison's uh, been endorsed by the AFL-CIO. He got a late start, Perez. Yeah, he, he jumped into the race late. Uh, so uh, well, he, he, it's not impossible for him to, for him to win, but it, it does seem like Ellison's got uh, got a head of steam behind him. Right I know now. this is mostly a fundraising job, but I'm interested to hearing from both these guys about how they will also increase competition at local and state levels for Democrats because it's been woeful. All right. Big debate. When is the debate? Debate is January 18th. And we'll be live streaming that on our site. Mm-hmm. You will be able to access it at the HuffingtonPost.com. We're hosting it at uh, George Washington University here in Washington, D.C. Uh, and it should be, it, I think it'll be a, a, a fun, substantive, informed discussion. All right. Please tune in for that. Zach and Arthur, thank you for talking about this. And we will be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. Guys, uh, I'm here with uh, Arthur Delaney. Hello. And we're joined by our foreign policy reporter, Akbar Ahmed. Hi. And we want to talk about the conflict in Yemen, uh, which the United States is inextricably tied to right now. Uh, we're about to hand this off to Donald Trump. I think we've talked a little bit about before uh, the state of play and what Donald Trump is inheriting. But, Akbar, I know you have some new things to talk about in terms of the Yemen conflict. So what's going on right now? How Did, did things change since we last time talked since the last um, we talked about this things are getting worse oh great <laughs> unfortunately no, uh, as, hear, yeah. as trump takes <laughs> office new year. civilian casualties have spiked over the last couple of months there was a failed peace process that went nowhere because the side the u.s is supporting the saudi side um has sort of made it impossible to move forward uh they're not willing to have a real negotiation to end the conflict everyone says john kerry who heroically leads diplomatic efforts all the time, sometimes they work, keep saying it's going to be a political process, not military. But right now, civilians keep getting killed, so it looks a lot more military, and that keeps happening with um, U.S. weaponry, U.S. fuel, uh, U.S. intelligence. So are the Saudis waiting to see what their uh, backers, the U.S., 
does with the transition of power? Is that the reason for things getting worse? I think the the reason is more uh, they are just getting more and more stubborn. It's becoming a PR factor for them, right? They need to show that they have won, um, and so they can't accept any kind of ceasefire or negotiation that makes them look bad. But they're definitely waiting and are really hopeful about Trump. Uh, many in the Gulf see Trump as one of their own. They see him as a businessman, someone who will take Saudi money, Gulf money, deals, investment. Trump's only comments on Yemen were about a year ago, uh, January 16th of 2016, when he said, I don't mind supporting the Saudis, I'd be happy to, but they have to make sure it economically benefits us. So this is kind of presenting the U.S. as a mercenary force, um, which suggests he's not going to back out of the war. He just wants to receive more money for helping the Saudis there. Isn't that contrary to his usual position that we, we, we needlessly entangle ourselves by yes. bombing or helping people bomb things in other countries? And this is the conundrum for him. I mean, he wants to try to pull out of Middle East conflicts. He says he's against Iraq, against Afghanistan, you know, hates Hillary Clinton for regime change. But here he says, if we can make a buck off it, we'll keep doing it. Uh, the story I'm, I'm sort of working on is about how the Saudis are trying to court him with this idea of deals of, you know, there's a great piece called Shake Donald of the House of Trump, right? They'd like to see him as that kind of player. Uh, I think they will be sorely disappointed. Uh, what leads you to believe they'll be disappointed? I think that the ideological aspect of his White House um, seems to be solidifying. This is something we saw last month with the Berlin attacks. So wh while there is an aspect of him that's this deal-making, business-type, there are a lot of people whispering in his ear who are like, why do we need a Muslim partner? Whether that's Saudi Arabia, whether that's Iran or Turkey, we hate them all equally. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see who wins out. Who is an example of uh, a Trump whisperer who holds that position? Steve Bannon, uh, who's going to be you know, very high up in the White House. Breitbart is obsessed with Saudi atrocities. It's obsessed with the idea of here is what Muslims do with U.S. support. So just abandon a Muslim world, right, and walk away from them. Um, I don't think he'll cut off support immediately, but he could if he wanted to. Uh, the U.S. has three main channels of support, and Obama has chosen not to cut off, despite more than 10,000 civilian casualties, uh, the vast majority by the Saudis and the U.S. Trump could, the second he comes into office, say, I'm not going to give you refueling, and I'm not going to give you intelligence. That would really be in keeping with his campaign promise of you know, pulling back from Middle he, East. He's not going to let them use our planes to refuel their planes right. while they carry out bombings on civilians. Right. He could do it. Uh, and it sort of highlights the hypocrisy of that position he had on the campaign trail because uh, it looks very unlikely that he'll shut it down right away. What is current U.S. policy on what should happen in Yemen? How do they want to resolve this? Con if the conflict could be resolved in any possible way, where would they like it to be? Uh, it would up. be at the United Nations. Uh, that would be a new UN Security Council resolution on Yemen. Um, the trouble is that the U.S. is trying to both present itself as a neutral broker in these negotiations and while supporting one side. Right. So you can't, you can't do that. Um, and that's what everyone else in the conflict says. Now some people are looking to Putin's Russia, suggesting they would play a role uh, in negotiations. Iran is fairly involved in Yemen as well. That's the point the militia the Saudis uh, dislike. It's unclear whether that will happen. So imagine we did withdraw support yeah. for the Saudi effort. What would happen, do you think? So it would fall apart. That's the really interesting part of this, is the Saudis are really playing with fire if 
by relying so heavily on the U.S. Because the second that gets pulled back, their bombing runs, their capacity diminishes like tenfold, if not more. Uh, their bombing runs go from something like four hours to 15 minutes. Uh, their ability to strike multiple times a day is severely reduced because they don't have the intelligence coming from U.S. sources. So they would be severely limited and it would make them look horrible. It already, this conflict already makes them look terrible, right? right? They're starving Yemeni children. They're doing a blockade. No one in Yemen has medicine. Doctors at borders has had to leave part of Yemen because the Saudis have bombed them so many times. So but, would, would the government in exile there be able to return to power and restore order in absence of these bombings? No, because it's the Saudi-backed government. So it would just be they would continue to be out of power. I'm sorry, uh, I had that backwards. Right, the, the, and the alternative government right. uh, that's been set up, the Iran sort of linked government, would gain increasing power, uh, which, as we know, mentions of Iran drive congressional Republicans nuts. So that Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the, the conundrum here is, is that if you pull out and stop supporting the Saudis, you de facto strengthen the position of the Iranians in this conflict. So two of Trump's, you know, big positions, and we see this collide in Syria too, where he says he's he wants to be tough on Iran, but he wants to help Bashar Assad. He doesn't seem to know how he's going to deal with these things. Um, however, there's a strong moral case to be made humanitarian groups are making for just pulling the support and figuring it all out later, right? Allowing the U.S. to actually become a neutral broker and say, Okay, now negotiate. And by the way, Saudi Arabia, we don't want to be associated with your war crimes. So, so we're left to guess whether we should expect Trump to be Trumpy and follow through on positions he's taken with regard to foreign policy, or the Saudis, or will people in Trump's inner circle have their way? And there's basically no way to predict what the U.S. government will do. It's a, t a total crapshoot. <laughs> uh, it is for the Saudis too. They're hoping that people like General Mattis, who he's picked for the Pentagon, are going to push him in a very anti-Iran direction so he'll stick with the Saudis. Um, but he hasn't said, and, and his relationship with the Saudis is interesting. He's a 9-11 truther, uh, if you recall, and he, he, he just believes a lot of things. And he's also you know, pointed to them as U.S. partners who he would reassess the relationship with. Now, on top of all of this, there's been recent polling data that, that even though we've been taking the Saudi side, in right. this, there's been recent polling data that suggests that United States-Saudi relationships are as frail as they've ever been. Yeah, Americans don't like Saudi Arabia. Uh, maybe if they let women drive, more people would like them, right? <laughs> and that's sort of what people keep advising them to do. <laughs> let, let women, women drive. drive. Yeah, <laughs> Everything's cool. It would be a little yeah. better. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. It would, though, right? It would be a little better. <laughs> It, w it would be significantly better, actually. I think it would be cosmetically better. <laughs> cosmetically still, better. You're still dealing with a regime that is, you know, endlessly corrupt and... And horrible towards women. And yeah, and, yeah, and plays too big a role in this region in the first place. Um, w w what's to be done for the Yemeni people at this point in time? Well, well the scary thing... What do they even... What, what, what would the Yemeni people even want out of this? I think a do lot they of want the, the return of the government? Do they want this militia to take over? I think a lot of people just want stability, right? They want the war to end. You can't even buy food in Yemen now because food importers won't go there, both because of there's a Saudi naval blockade and because no one in Yemen has the money to buy food. It's just not, you know, worth it. Um, even if we pull our support, that Saudi naval blockade stays in place. Right? It depends. Uh, the Saudis could have to majorly reassess their position and say, okay, now we need to do a strategic, just pull out. Right, and it's a lot of people have compared this to Saudi Vietnam. Um, it really makes them look awful. 
and it doesn't help the U.S., which is trying to say in Syria, you, you know, Russia is helping commit war crimes. Yemen, the U.S. is doing the same thing. I mean, it sounds to me like the only thing that's keeping us from doing the right thing here is the perception that we will be aiding Iran. Right. But and it, it really depends on how Trump and the congressional GOP's relationship goes, because they could pressure him and say, look, this is an Iranian expansionist plot. Um, unclear how receptive he is to that, but they will certainly push back on any effort he makes to do what might be the right thing. Okay. All right. Well, uh, man. Handing off our proxy wars, part of the peaceful transition of power. Yeah, so peaceful. <laughs> All right, Akbar, thanks for joining Thank us you. today. And Arthur, we will be right back. And we are back. And we're going to now talk a little bit about uh, the outgoing president, Barack Obama, and his legacy. Joining us, we have Zach Carter. Hi, everybody. And we're very pleased to have our good friend and compatriot, Jen Bendery. Hello. So, Jen, I wanna, we were going to talk about uh, Obama's judicial legacy. And right off the bat, obviously his judicial legacy has been somewhat marred by the fact that Merrick Garland never happened. Yes, that so that was that's probably the thing that makes the most headlines about Obama's judicial legacy that, you know, Republicans denied him a Supreme Court pick uh, for almost a year. Breaking and now Donald Trump gets to fill quite that a number seat. of norms. Yeah, so that was pretty unprecedented. But I, I, I think it's worth taking a step back and looking at the last eight years and collectively seeing what his legacy will be. And it's actually it's it's pretty impressive. Um, he has put more people, more people of color uh, on federal courts than anybody before him. He's put more women on courts, um, more LGBT judges, more Asian American, more African American. I mean, just pick a a group of people that are not that straight not white men represented at all. Straight white men, yeah. And they he filled out uh, federal circuit courts and district courts all over the country with the most diversity this country's ever had. So that is a huge difference between him and past presidents. Um, in total, he got something like 329 federal judges confirmed. And for some contrast, um, George Bush got 327. Bill Clinton got like 380. So, you know, just ballpark numbers. He's in there roughly where everybody else is. Mm-hmm. Um, Despite but, the fact that he was often obstructed. So so that, that was the good news for him. The yeah. bad news is that um, there's a broader context. He is leaving office with more vacancies than past presidents. So, for example, while he confirmed or appointed 329 federal judges and Bush uh, appointed like 327, they sound the same. When Bush left office, there were something like 56 vacancies across the country on federal courts. When when Obama leaves, there's something like 85 or 90. So and these are all... Pl- Seats that can be filled by by whoever Donald Trump wants. Yes, and I should clarify, it's actually more than a hundred vacancies on district and circuit courts nationwide. That is almost double his predecessor. Yeah, and these all are being passed over to Donald Trump to fill. And this was an intentional move by Republicans in the Senate, who fought tooth and nail for years to prevent Obama from filling any possible lifetime court seat that they could, because they were hoping a Republican would win this year, and he did, so that that Republican president could pick different nominees and fill out all those court seats with Republican 
preferred nominees. So it worked. This was all the, the, the plotting of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and it worked. So it's not just Merrick Garland who got denied a Supreme Court seat, but it's literally dozens of district and federal courts that did not get judges put on them because Republicans held the seats open for Trump. This is one of the, the I think, uh, least understood elements of the uh, of the obstruction strategy. Because if you look at legislatively, Obama got a lot of the things that he wanted, right? He got the Affordable Care Act. He got... Uh, he got Dodd-Frank, you know, repealed most of the Bush tax cuts on the wealthy. Uh, there's a lot of things that, that clearly Obama wanted to see happen that, that did happen in his presidency, despite the obstruction, and he was reelected. So the, the narrative until Donald Trump won was, well, this obstruction strategy doesn't seem to be paying off for Republicans. But these are lifetime appointments, so a lot of policymaking happens on the bench, and not just the Supreme Court. Uh, and, and so Republicans are going to be able to do a lot of, you know, anytime someone's challenging, a, you know, an abortion restriction or, uh, or you know, same-sex marriage or, or what, whatever we have, um, they're going to have judges that are going to be friendly to them uh, for a long time. Well, and it, it's a mixed bag right now because even though there is now this potential for Trump to fill out a, a, a huge number of court seats, more than anybody before him as president, he hasn't done it yet. The Senate has work to do if they're going to get this done. And for the time being, Obama just put a whole bunch of judges all over federal courts, which for the time being is going to have a huge effect on major legal decisions. And that mm-hmm. includes, um, I know a lot of statistics because I cover this stuff so much. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not an encyclopedia on everything, but I do know that there are uh, 13 appellate courts across the country, federal circuit courts. When Obama took office, only one of them uh, was uh, predominantly Democratic appointees on it, and now there's nine. Yeah, that's a huge difference. It's a big swing. Yeah. And of course, on the Supreme Court, Obama put on two uh, Supreme Court nominees, two relatively young women, one woman of color. So that's that's a huge shift in the way that court works. And the second most powerful court is the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, just is just beneath the Supreme Court, but extremely powerful. It controls a lot of rulings that affect things like Obamacare, for example, or executive orders. Obama appointed four judges to that court in the last eight years, and he tilted the leaning of that court to a seven to four um, Democrat to Republican appointee balance. So that those things are going to have an effect, even though Trump is well positioned to fill out all these other empty seats. He hasn't done it yet. And for the time being, there's a huge effect right now that that Obama is having on court decisions at, you know, at the federal level and across the whole country. What happens in the escalation of the parliamentary arms race in Congress? I mean, one of the reasons that it was perhaps appalling to see people like Mitch McConnell uh, block so many of Obama's judicial appointments is that he didn't actually enjoy a supermajority in the Senate and even a majority until recently. And now the Democrats find themselves out of power, but not so far out of power they can't bung up the works. What's to stop the Democrats from, you know, doing doing the same thing to Trump as they did to Obama? Well, um, I'm not saying that's a good thing. At some point, I do think that people need to like come off the ledge on on this brinksmanship because it's going to get toxic and terrible before it gets better if we don't. But. What are Democrats thinking about how do they approach Donald Trump? Is it tit for tat? Is it give as good as you get? Well, it's a bit different now because uh, in 2013, as you know, uh, Democrats unilaterally got rid of the filibuster rule for nearly all judges. Right. So um, what that means is it only takes 51 votes in the Senate to confirm 
any judge except for a Supreme Court nominee. That means any circuit court judge, any district court judge. And it used to take 60 votes. Now it takes 51. That was a, a huge shift right. in so, the Senate. So now here we are. And they did that because Republicans were blocking every single nominee all the time on every procedural step possible. It was just untenable. So it was an untenable situation. And it was an un, I mean, I, personally, I don't blame Democrats for blowing up that rule. But now you're right. They're in the, the minority. Republicans can now push through judges at 51 votes every single right. time. Right. It's a little bit except, what you wish for. It, right. And, and I think Democrats knew that going into this and they were willing to, to take that gamble because it was so bad that nothing was happening before. No judges were getting confirmed. And remember, it's not just a game of politics. There, there's courts out there trying to work. Right. They don't care about if you're a Republican or Democrat. They, they just they, they have people yeah. waiting to get their court their their cases heard. Regular people, everyday people who, if I got discriminated against at work, I would, you know, if I wanted to sue my boss, that case would get delayed potentially years now because there's not enough judges on that court to to take cases. So now, you know, Democrats are in the minority. They're going to have to figure out how are they going to try to stop these judicial nominees from coming through if they don't like them. But it's the key here is that. It takes 51 votes to confirm a judge out of, you know, 100 people in the Senate. The, the split in there right now is 52 to 48. Right. Is extremely close, which means Republicans can only afford to lose two, yeah. right? Yeah. Anytime. It to, anytime. And it's not like everyone is the same. You know, all Republicans vote the same and all Democrats vote the same. You'll have plenty of cases where there's, there's always an occasional moderate, like Susan Collins from Maine is a pretty moderate Republican. Or you might have Rand Paul, who's just like a who knows what. He's just a loose cannon and unpredictable. He might not like a certain nominee. There's there's bad blood with certain nominees and certain senators from for other reasons. Right. Because they know each other sometimes. So sometimes they've they've run against each other for right. Office. I mean, it's a small enough world where you know there's judges and lawyers and states who know each other, right? So. I don't think it's going to be a cakewalk for Donald Trump to fill out courts. I think he's got it easier than, than, Obama, did, than Obama because of this rule change and, and Republicans having the majority. But um, Has there been they any, have some work to do. Have, have Democrats talked about doing to Trump what uh, Republicans did to Obama in terms of the Supreme Court? Well, the only thing we've heard so far on that is Chuck Schumer, who's the new majority leader, um, he, he made a comment a couple of days ago that got a lot of attention where he said, you know, we're going to keep that seat open. You know, which, okay, and, and if you look closer at what he said, you know, he's saying we're not going to let any nominee get through if they're not mainstream. Okay, so that's a little hedging, which is important to yeah. note. Um, but he, they, Democrats do have some real control this time. It takes 60 votes to confirm, to, to advance a Supreme Court nominee. They have 52 Republicans. They can't pick someone who's completely fringe, ultra-conservative out there that, that the Heritage Foundation would love necessarily. They need right. eight more people in the Senate to like this person. So I don't think Democrats can or would keep the seat open for that long, but they're not going to, they can absolutely prevent an ultra conservative pick from getting through. Interesting. All right. Well, uh, I, I, I imagine you'll have more to talk about this, uh, on the site a little bit. All right. So, so, <laughs> so keep an, keep an eye out for, uh, Jen Bendry, next couple of weeks as we all here at the Huffington Post uh, submit our briefs on Obama's legacy in the wake of in the wake of uh, the new inauguration coming up. So Jen, thanks for being with us. Thank you. And uh, we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. 
This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Amber Ferguson. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Akbar Ahmed, Jen Bendery, Zach Carter, and Arthur Delaney, Huffington Post reporters all. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and welcome to a new year. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.